Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this online event on climate change, displacement and international justice. The event is hosted by the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment here at the LSE. My name is Robert Faulkner and I'm the Research Director of the Grantham Institute. Climate change is widely expected to lead to massive displacement of people and global migration flows. As sea levels rise, flood risks increase, and heat waves and droughts become more intense, climate change will undermine the livelihoods of hundreds of millions of people, and many will have to move. This threat raises important questions. What will happen to the communities that are being uprooted by the climate catastrophe? What principles of climate justice apply to displaced people? Whose responsibility is it to help and potentially compensate displaced people? And what role can national and international legal frameworks and the UN climate regime play in this context? To discuss these and other questions, we've assembled a stellar panel of experts in human rights, ethics, international politics and law. I'm pleased to welcome our four esteemed speakers to the LSE today, Connor Gerti, Tazim Jaffrey, Chucks Okereke and Joanna Setzer. I will introduce each before their opening statements. The format for this webinar will be as follows. Our speakers will offer some opening reflections on the topic of conversation today. After that, we move into a panel discussion, which I will chair. Uh, I may be posing some questions myself, but I will make sure that we will field as many questions from the audience to the panelists. I should mention that for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSECOVID19. We use this hashtag because this event is part of the LSE's Shaping the Post-COVID World initiative. I would also like to mention that this online event is being recorded and provided we can sort out the technical difficulties, we hope to make it available as a podcast after the event. So as usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to our panel. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature, which you'll find at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself, and I will then pose as many as possible to the speakers. Apologies if I can't get all the questions in. We're expecting a large audience to tune in uh, tonight. Please let us know your name and affiliation in your questions, because we're particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni from the LSE, so please let us know who you are. I'm now delighted to hand over to our first speaker, who is Professor Tazin Jaffrig. Tazin is the director of the Center for Climate Justice at Glasgow Caledonian University. Her research focus is on justice and equity aspects of climate change, but she has much wider interests in development and gender and poverty uh, uh, issues. She has a dual academic training in engineering and social sciences. And with over two decades of research and development experience, she has a deep knowledge of just how climate change affects local community. And she has done a lot of work on this topic in Africa herself. Tassin, welcome to this panel and over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. And um, for that wonderful in, uh, introduction, I just want to say it's both uh, an honour and a pleasure to, to join this event um, this evening. And I'm really looking forward to, to the conversation. So I want to start by just sharing my screen, uh, if I may. 
So uh, I just want to take a moment to set the scene a little bit on climate change and displacement. Between 2008 and 2019, 300 million people have been displaced by weather-related events. Data released recently by the Institute of Economics and Peace project that up to 1.2 billion people are at risk of displacement by 2050. The World Bank estimate that climate change will push tens of millions of people to migrate within their countries also by 2050. Worryingly though, data released just the other day by the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction provide clear indication that the world has seen an 82% increase in climate-related disasters since 1980 and the implications for climate-induced migration is therefore clear. Most common threats are flooding, natural disaster, heat waves in the global south, but the trend is changing also with impacts being felt in the global north too. The United States has experienced the largest number of climate disasters since 1990 and in Australia last year there were 26,000 people displaced due to climate related uh, events. So with reference to all of that, it's a question of who is it that's being displaced um, and how are they being affected? And for me, it comes down to a matter of definitions. And we hear a number of definitions that are bounded around in the international community. We hear about climate refugees, environmental refugees. We hear about climate migrants and environmental migrants. However, according to the 1951 Geneva Convention relating to the status of what we mean by refugees, this really only applies to transboundary flight from political persecution. Um, with reference to, to migrants, uh, we, we really hear this term with reference to the slow onset of climate change, um, with, with droughts and people experiencing food uh, insecurities, people are on the move and so they're, they're migrating uh, to, to better places and uh, for, for survival. However, I want to, to note that neither of these terms are endorsed by the United Nations and international law. What is seems to be uh, more uh, common, we hear more around by the UNHCR, is this reference to displaced people in the context of disasters and climate change. This is a much looser definition um, and uh, it's clearly around um, uh, unclarity un around internally displaced people or is this about the displacement of people uh, across borders um, and where does the onus of responsibility lie for, for this community. From an injustice, from a climate justice or injustice perspective, it's a lens that we look at. It's the poorest who are suffering most. They've contributed least to, to climate change and therefore um, climate related uh, disasters and the onslaught of increased um, uh, weather events. Um, but they're suffering um, the most. And as they do so, with reference to the definitions I'm just I've just described there, we're in a situation where we're finding millions and millions of people that are having to move uh, and they find themselves not belonging um, anywhere and they find themselves as having, with no one's kind of like responsibility, a kind of like a lost group of people. Um, so with reference to that, I just want to explain uh, just share with you some insights of some of the research that we're doing at the Centre for Climate Justice um, with relation to, to this and bring this to, to life a little bit. Um, this is our, our work in Malawi. I had the pleasure of being out there uh, earlier this year before lockdown in, in February. 
In 2019, there were 54,000 internally displaced people in Malawi. The onslaught of heavy rains in 2019 has left people devastated, stressed, suffering from depression, anxiety, and so on. What I was also hearing about is the in increase in incidence of gender-based violence, um, and this has gone on further to manifesting in trafficking, but sex trafficking particularly um, uh, affecting uh, young girls um, and this is then leading to uh, an increase in um, uh, sexually um, uh, transmitted disease and really affecting the health welfare and the well-being of of these communities who are ex affected by by climate related events so what we see as you know uh, as, as a disaster where, where buildings are falling down it's actually affecting the mental health and well-being of, of people on the ground um, I want to go across quickly to Nigeria now. Um, on on the left of the picture, um, one of my doctoral students is is actually um, working on looking at um, the impacts uh, of, of of people who have experienced. Um, uh, flooding, increased flooding from uh, in coastal zones in, in Nigeria. You, you're seeing the, the images there, you can see physical devastation, but what we're looking at is going beyond that physical de devastation um, and drilling deep into what it's, how it's affecting communities um, now and what it means for their, their um, communities in the, in the future. And this, this research that we're looking at refers to cultural bereavement. I don't know if that's a term that you've heard of before. And this loss of culture identity and it's really important that I stress that because it means that and I'll just read out the quote there what hurts most is that my children will not get the chance to have the same experiences because there's no ancestral home anymore water has destroyed it all so I think these are things they're very personal and emotional things but highly critical for um, for the survival of these communities and and future generations uh, of the children's and children We've just started some research also in, um, in Nigeria, looking at the movement of people from uh, north to southern uh, Nigeria, um, to traditional movements of people with reference to injustice. But what, what we're looking at with this research is what it means with reference to conflict peace and security um, and with reference to conflict what it means um, when people move and encroach on other um, areas and landscapes um, uh, and, and conflicts with um, other um, people who are already living in those environments and conflict for, for access to resources as well. So we've just started um, that research. What um, I want to, to mention um, research that we've just completed in in zambia um and and this is the, this this work lo looked at the movement of people from rural zambia into um into lusaka into uh, informal settlements again informal settlements are not really recognized by by the government um, and so the people that end up in these environments have no support, they have um, very little access to um, clean water and sanitation um, and, and energy um, and, and, and so on. So the living conditions are, are, are hard. And what we look at this, when we look at this, we're seeing this double injustice because they're moving from an environment where they're got no crops and no food and they cannot survive, they cannot live into an even worse situation in these informal settlements and find that they have um, they're not recognized and nobody wants to take any kind of like responsibility uh, for them so 
you know, these are three very, very different um, examples of, of how um, migration is manifesting in, um, in different kind of like contexts and zones. Um, and it kind of like brings it all together with me just providing a few reflections on, on what we're, we're seeing there. It, it, the number one and the most important thing is recognising that the poorest and the most vulnerable people do have a right to development in national and international frameworks. And that's absolutely critical that that is done because like I said at the beginning, how we define these people and with reference to whose responsibility are they, whether it's movement within borders or across borders, it gets very muddy very, very quickly. Um, with reference to agency um, and, uh, and people's voice, ensuring that those people who have been affected and having to move because of climate related issues, they are represented, their voice um, is represented at policy and, and decision making platforms um, with um, reference to inclusivity and decision making power. So here I'm really talking about procedural justice here because it's absolutely vital that procedural justice is, is part and parcel of um, negotiations and, and conversations that take place at global platforms because unless we give people voice then they will not be heard um, and for, for us at the centre we've been doing a lot of this work and what we're finding is when we see a lot of this um, uh, the, the, the um, impacts of climate change we see it through a lens that the, the physical lens, the buildings have fallen down and the bridges have collapsed. What we don't hear enough about is how it's affecting people personally, emotionally um, and from a historical point perspective and I think we need to get much better at pulling together not just quantitative but qualitative data um, around these issues with reference to um, geographical movements of people, the migration data but also critically the daily challenges and the coping mechanisms that people have personally to be able to survive um, the situations um, that they're in and I think unless we as a community do that we will always just be rebuilding a school or rebuilding uh, a bridge so with reference to that I, I just wanted to provide uh, those those kind of like reflections um, and uh, to say thank you again for having me speak and um, I shall stop sharing my so hopefully I'm back now. <laughs> wonderful. Thank you so much, Tassine. That was a wonderful opening for our panel discussion because you gave the whole discussion quite a bit of empirical substance, but also you clarified some of those key categories that we're dealing with here, which we will have to go back to as we continue. But we now shift over to a human rights perspective, and it's it's a pleasure to, to introduce our second speaker, Professor Connor Gerty. Connor is, as most of you will know, a professor of human rights law at the LSE, and he's a former director of the Center for the Study of Human Rights. He's also a practicing barrister at Matrix Chambers, which he helped to found back in 2000. He's a bencher of both Middle Temple and the King's Inn, and uh, he's a fellow of the British Academy and a member of the Royal Irish Academy. Um, Connor has an interest in how human rights and climate change interface, and, and I'm delighted to give the floor to Connor. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Robert. I've now set myself a timer, so uh, I'm going to try and be brief, which is about eight minutes. And 
I'm going to give you four sort of assertions and we have time in a Q&A afterwards to unpick some of them if people are interested. I've got a very little bit of time now, so I'm just pushing some ideas out there. So here they go. First one, uh, human rights has emerged as the center of our ethical engagement in the world. Now, I say that because it didn't used to be. We've had lots of ways in which we've managed ourselves to try and produce good outcomes in the past. We've used religious leaders, we've used community leaders, and then after we kind of gave up on religion, largely we used intellect. So there's lots of ways in which we've sought to control ourselves. And nowadays, human rights has become uppermost in our minds as a way of disciplining ourselves. And it's taken that leap because of the Second World War. And here's where I say it's got this dynamic dimension. This is controversial. Yeah, not what I say is controversial, but people think it's something you can realize through, through intellectual work alone and that there's a certain limited number of rights. Quite important from today's perspective is that, uh, uh, that you don't think that's the case. That it's a dynamic, flexible... Uh, it's a visibility project. So what is happening is people try and use the idea of human rights to say, look at me, look at me, I'm here. Uh, I may be a person from an indigenous community and therefore seeking environmental support. Uh, I'm here, please look at me. It may be women, it may be people of color, it may be people with disabilities. I see human rights as dynamic, as unfolding, as dramatic, as changing, as capturing what we think of as what matters today about how to behave well. That's part one. To be disputed, maybe, point one. Point two, what's the unique selling point of human rights? <clears throat> Excuse me. Two things. Why do we use this language? One, it's an amazing thing to think uh, a human right is a right. It's not compassion. It's not sort of rich people giving something to somebody and going home feeling good. Human rights is saying... Life doesn't have to be like this. I have an entitlement. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed. I have an entitlement. And then very much reflecting that remarkable work we heard from Tazim, uh, its second unique selling point, its second dramatic selling point, not unique, it has another one, is it's universal. That's a really important point. I've been, for 10 years, I would say, trustee of Mary Robinson's innovative, path-breaking, Foundation for Climate Justice. Mary explained to me what climate justice was when I hadn't heard of it. And her point, her insight very much played out in that first presentation was the value of everybody means that nobody gets left behind. And so the poor always get shafted. Well, human rights says, no, they don't. You don't buy your conscience at the expense of the poor. So the rights bit of human matters as much. I'd say possibly even more than the human bit, more on that in a minute. That's the second point. Rights matter. And that's why the language counts. So it's not just the ethic of today, it has value in the language. Third point, where does law fit? Now I'm a lawyer, Robert introduced me as such, and uh, I've spent all my life studying law, but I've always seen laws to some extent functional. Now, there is no doubt whatsoever of the allure of law. Law, 
turns stuff from aspiration into action. And in the system we've designed, which has independent judicial bodies and independent uh, lawyers, that can be achieved uh, against the say-so of government. So we see it played out in this country, in many countries at the moment, all the time. Governments throw out improbable assertions. But if we can fool them or catch them off guard and cause these assertions to be legislated, we can actually force their hand. What law does is make political leaders take their words seriously. So it's very important. And so the transition in human rights is usually from soft law to hard law. So we say, oh, it's only a declaration, don't worry about it, and then we get a little bit more, and then we get a little bit more, and before you know it, we're taking people to a human rights committee. And that is valuable. That is valuable. So law matters. But in terms of the environmental calamity, we don't have bespoke human rights law. You would have detected more on this in my fourth point. This is my third one about the law, the value of law. The word human could be thought of as a bit restrictive here. We seem to be all about us as a species and not about the world around us. There is a mismatch between the way we have constructed human rights law, which is excellent, but ends with the human, expends its energy on the human, and how we are trying to reimagine human rights law as located as a shared planet with animals, with species, and as our advanced knowledge shows us how much even animals and trees can engage in ways that we can regard as recognizably communicative. So there's a mismatch. Now what's happening, Joanna is going to be on shortly and she's fascinating on this. We've been deploying ordinary human rights law to try and achieve change. We may come up to this on the Q&A, we may, if we can. Uh, we've had some innovative cases. There's been one in a Dutch one where climate change plans were set aside. There was even a Polish one the other day where some dreadful polluting coal thing was drawn to a close. This is on the basis, there's an Irish one, uh, on climate mitigation. Now, what are we doing? Not me, but people like Joanna and, and activists are reconstructing environmental concerns uh, as human rights concerns, the right to life, the right to privacy, the right not to be poisoned. So we're talking the language of the human as a device to get the environmental outcome. These cases are great. They're great. Uh, there's cases on corporate liability. Uh, you know, there's another big one starting in the Supreme Court in the United States of America, where these big international operations are having to pay the price for the destruction of local environments under cover of, broadly speaking, rights law. So it's good, but it doesn't go the whole way. But it's definitely valuable. Fourth and last point, my clock's gone blank. I have no idea how long I've been on. Robert's going to have to mute me in a few minutes if I've run way over. I'm on my last point. Two minutes, fantastic, or the victory sign. I'm not sure. The indispensability of human rights. I've said it's the ethical foundation. That's one part of it. I've explained its unique selling points, the value of law, but it's indispensable in our current culture. It can talk to the corporates in a way that the corporates can understand. 
it can talk soft law in the way that international politicians are not frightened, by which I mean declarations and so on. It can be regional, the European Convention on Human Rights. There's a remarkable case involving a whole bunch of Portuguese children before the European Court of Human Rights at the moment. It can be purely international. The Human Rights Committee, it can be drilled down to the national. It's malleable. So some people, lawyers, worry about malleability. I think it's one of the great gifts that human rights has. It can fit, fit, fit places. It's got a kind of postmodern capacity to be all things. I applaud it. Uh, but it has to reach beyond the human, last point, really, for discussion. It has to anticipate the future. Human rights is a field of study that has always been ahead of the curve of popular opinion for the last 70 years. It's always said things that were crazy, and it's been proved right. Women, race, children, indigenous peoples, people with disabilities, it's been there. And the next stage is to think of the human as integrated, is to lose a little bit of our obsessive Western individualism, is to see the is to learn from other cultures and to see the human as located and to work towards an understanding of human rights, as I argued in one paper ages ago, it's a subset of animal rights. It, it's part of animal rights. And then to read and be open to understanding environmental rights and to be unafraid of, say, giving individual rights to elements that cannot speak, but on whose behalf we can speak. We're very familiar with that. Trustees. We're very familiar with that. We're very familiar with it. Why does it have to always be a human we can represent? So we need to be ahead. We need energy. So we play the whole field. And human rights can do that extremely effectively. And that's why, despite some misgivings in the old days, I've come around to be very supportive of the discourse of human rights. And at that point, I'm about to be muted. So I should mute myself before I'm attacked by our invasive chair. That's me. Thank you very much. Wonderful, Connor. Thank you so much for these thoughtful, provocative ideas about the role of human rights. We'll come back to many of these points as you've made, and, and they, they came at the right point in this discussion. Um, before I introduce our uh, third speaker, I just wanted to uh, let the audience know again that please use the Q&A function to put any questions to the panel. Please do send them to us so that we can collect them and I will then feed them into the panel discussion after the first round of introductory remarks and, and the first round of questions from me. Good. Um, so we've heard from two panelists, uh, but I'm now delighted to introduce our third speaker, Professor Chucks Okereke, who is the director of the Center for Climate Change and Development at the Alex Ekweme uh, Federal University Ndufualike in Nigeria. Before taking on this leadership role very recently, uh, Chucks was a professor of environment and development at the University of Reading, where he served as the co-director of the Climate and Justice Center there. His research is broadly in the area of the international politics of climate change and climate justice, and he has been engaged in high-level advisory and consultancy work for governments, businesses, and NGOs in Africa, as well as internationally. Chucks, thank you for being with us. You're speaking directly from Nigeria. This is the beauty, of course, of our uh, Zoom-filled uh, events. We can beam you in straight away. I look forward to your opening remarks. 
Thank you so very much, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here and to share um, with other distinguished panelists to be discussing this very crucial subject. In my view, I think that justice or lack of justice in relation to climate change displaced people and communities in the world today perhaps represents one of the biggest issues of injustice, not only in the context of climate change, but globally currently. As um, Tahsin had already indicated, we are talking about between 500 to uh, million to potentially 1.2 billion people by 2050 that are going to be uh, affected by some form of climate change displacement or the other. And about 75 to 80% of this population is projected to come from developing countries who are already vulnerable to climate change and that have contributed the least to the problem of climate change. And we're not talking about statistics here, we're talking about real individuals, real human life, as uh, Tassin uh, excellently identified in her articulation. So whether you're talking about people from the Maghreb region in Mali, from uh, Benue, uh, Boronu, uh, in the Boko Haram, uh, Redwood area in Nigeria, in Nigeria, in Chad, or in southern Sudan, these are real people. And in my own research, uh, I have articulated to simplify that there are three key interconnections between justice and climate change. And these three connections lie in what I call three asymmetries. Asymmetry in contribution, which means that uh, both communities and nations do not contribute to climate change equally. And simple definition of justice would demand that people clean up after their mess. We also have asymmetry in impact, which is more or less where the issue of climate change displacement falls in. And by asymmetry in impact, we are saying that the negative impact of climate change are not borne equally by countries and communities. It just so happens that it's actually the same kind of people that have contributed the least to climate change that are bearing the greatest brunt of the impact of climate change. And then you have the third dimension of asymmetry, which is asymmetry in power to decide, which is hacking more towards what you call procedural justice, which again implies that there is huge asymmetry in the ability that people have to make decisions about how, whether it's globally or at national level, climate change should be tackled. If, as if you're like me, that is focused mostly on international climate policies, these asymmetries basically resolve uh, along the lines of developed and developing countries. And uh, developing countries have been making the argument right from the onset of climate change international policy uh, cooperation that justice has to be central or a central tenet in climate change uh, negotiations. And they did get some mileage in the UNFCCC uh, agreement signed in 1992. Uh, Nations went as far as agreeing that climate change is a matter of justice and equity, and an equity should actually represent the cornerstone around which uh, issues of justice, uh, climate change should be dealt with. And so Article 4 of the UNFCCC did talk about adaptation. 
and encourage some form of regional agreement as a means of dealing with issues of uh, adaptation. But no mention was made of climate change displacement. And I'm actually ashamed to say that even right now, there is no single mention of climate change displaced in any of the major articles of agreement related to climate change, even the Paris Agreement. What we did get uh, is uh, in 2013, uh, the elaboration of what we call the International um, Warsaw Mechanism on Loss and Damage, which talked about the need for understanding ways in which nations could collaborate uh, to tackle the issue of loss and damage that might be related to climate change. Talking about the need for collaboration, the need for research, the need for risk management, and the need for resilience. And that particular line on the need for resilience for communities is very crucial because I think it opens the door for the International Warsaw Mechanism to go and say, look, uh, we cannot just be reactive. We have to be dealing with how to enhance the resilience of communities. But the problem is that even uh, to get some of the articles that developing countries did manage to get in the Warsaw Mechanism was a big political fight because uh, traditionally, questions around justice in climate change negotiation has been much more concentrated on, on justice uh, around the issues of mitigation. Developed countries understood that more because it was more about how do you divide emission rights. And now that's how we ended up with the Kyoto Protocol that kind of exempted developing countries from quantified emission reduction obligations. But the people that hold the power in international climate negotiation found it difficult and still find it difficult to understand uh, justice in the, in the context of climate change adaptation, not least because they argue that that kind of justice uh, in adaptation is so intricately intertwined with you know, development practices and practices and other forms of precarity. And so... Uh, and also, they fear that talking about justice in terms of adaptation will uh, uh, give rise to some kind of international obligations for compensation. And so they've pushed really back in any kind of mention of climate change displacement and linking that with adaptation and even loss and damage in the regime. And as Tassin already indicated, that then means that the millions of people across the world that are suffering from climate change-related discipline have no clear rights or responsibilities and privileges. The United Nations um, High Commission for, for uh, Refugees, uh, as we know, uh, actually focused on those fleeing persecution on the grounds of race, on the grounds of political violence, on the grounds of uh, religion, etc. And there is no article or agreement, even outside of climate change, that provides a home for this hugely growing population of displaced people around the world, creating, in my view, a major gap in international climate policy uh, and, and international institutions for looking after people that are vulnerable in general. And so I think that going forward, what we need is at least first and foremost, an explicit mention of climate change displacement in the articles or protocols that will be negotiated uh, 
you know, after, uh, you know, as an addendum to the Paris Agreement uh, in, 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 um, in next COP. And then going forward, uh, such a protocol or addendum or memorandum of understanding or plan of action has to begin to define more elaborately uh, what is climate uh, displacement and what kind of rights they have. And then going forward, the International Warsaw Mechanism and indeed other institutions for dealing with climate change adaptation within the regime need to be empowered to be more proactive in dealing with this and maybe they can negotiate with the United Nations High Commission Refugee to be a kind of implementing agency that is coordinating the action and beginning to provide some kind of coherence in the way that the millions of people around the world that are going to be increasingly affected by climate change and under environmental uh, disasters can be looked after. And by the way, these are not just about people. We're also talking about a whole nation, in some cases, uh, uh, suffering from the, from the threat of total displacement, as was the case in Tuvalu, in Maldives, and in many of their tall and small island regions. I want to end up with a quote uh, by an African uh, president who once said that for him, uh, climate change is just like a biological warfare being perpetrated on Africa and all the vulnerable regions by uh, the developed countries of the world. And the reason why I'm ending with that quote is that we are actually now in the era of COVID, where, uh, if you believe some kind of um, you know, conspiracy theories, you can see what a kind of biological warfare can do. Now the whole world has risen uh, to dealing with COVID, but I also fear that why, uh, of course, it is right to pay attention to the public health implications of COVID, we must not forget the millions that are also suffering from climate change displacement, because this is also a potential source of injustice globally. Thank you, Rob. Wonderful, Chuck. So thank you very much. Uh, a very important, very powerful intervention indeed. I, I'd like to hand over the floor now to our fourth speaker. Uh, last but not least, Dr. Jana Setzer is an assistant professorial research fellow at the Grantham Research Institute here at the LSE. Jana's research is focused on both the role of subnational governments, but also courts in climate governance. And she leads the Grantham Institute's work on climate litigation, including that part of the uh, climate change laws of the world database that has been built up at Grantham. Um, one of her most recent publications, I could mention many, but I just want to pull that one out, uh, that came out earlier this year, uh, explores the uptick in climate change litigation cases in the global south. And this is very much the topic of her remarks, the role that litigation could play in this area. Joanna, thank you for being with us and over to you. Thank you, Robert, and uh, also thanks all the speakers who spoke before me. I'm actually glad to be the last because my remarks on the use of climate litigation in addressing climate displacement speak to a number of points and challenges that have been already raised, so makes my life easier. Um, so, as Robert said, my main area of research is climate change litigation. And, and among the different trends that we observe in climate litigation, in recent years, there's been a growing movement to address climate-driven displacement through in courts and non-judicial bodies. So, in this presentation, I would like to argue that this movement reflects and is a, also a response 
to the lack of international and domestic legislation and policies. That by framing climate displacement as a human rights issue, these cases join a growing number of legal challenges that use international human rights law to try to hold governments and companies accountable for climate change. However, I also want to make the point that while litigation has been used as a tool to drive action and to raise awareness, there are good reasons to understand that filing cases and complaints should be a last resort, particularly in this area, as we still need to further understand the nexus between human mobility and climate change. So uh, to give you an idea in case you're not familiar with, what cases are there? As we heard, uh, the legal options for those seeking asylum for climate-related reasons are few, and the domestic legal remedies available are even fewer. At the Grantham Research Institute, we maintain a database of climate legislation and litigation. The litigation database is a collaborative project with the Sabin Center at Columbia University. And in, in that database, you can find cases that have been brought to domestic courts as well as to international bodies. So here I want to summarize a few of these cases to give you an idea of the grounds in which they have been brought and decided. First, three domestic cases. The first one, uh, a case in Australia, the refugee tribunal had to decide on a case brought by a citizen from Kiribati claiming that some of Kiribati islands are disappearing due to climate change and sea level rise, affecting fresh water supply and ruining his livelihood. So in this case, the court found that climate change was not sufficient to constitute a persecution under the Refugee Convention. The second case in New Zealand, the Immigration and Protection Tribunal decided on a case brought by a family from Tuvalu, they were denied visas in New Zealand and filed the suit. While the tribunal acknowledged that climate change impacts could have an effect in the enjoyment of human rights, it explicitly declined to reach the question of whether climate change provided a basis for granting the visas. Instead, the tribunal based its finding on other factors, including the presence of extended family in the country, their integration into com the community and the best interests of the children in the family. The third case is again in New Zealand. And this, this is a case that was, you might have heard, brought by Mr. Teitiota and his wife, both from Kiribati. And this case made it all the way to the Supreme Court in New Zealand. At the end, the High Court held that the risk of violation had to be imminent and that the situation presented was not so precarious that their life would be in danger. Now, you might have already heard or be familiar with this general requirement in international law that in order to be able to submit a complaint alleging human rights violations to an international human rights court or mechanism, one must, must have exhausted all the domestic remedies. So with the rejection of this case in, uh, by the High Court, Mr. Teitiota was able to file a complaint to the UN Human Rights Committee. And this brings us from the domestic to the international sphere. 
the Teichota case became the first to tackle the issue of rising sea levels and its implications for island communities in the context of an asylum claim before an international treaty body. This is an important case on the scope of the right of life, uh, displacement, and especially on how the so-called slow violence of climate change is understood in that context. A decision was given just a few months ago in January. And, uh, well, you might have heard about the decision, but I will, uh, I will summarize here for you. So, on the first place, the, the committee found that the claim was admissible. The committee explained that both sudden onset and slow onset events, such as sea level rise, could propel migration on basis of climate change related harm. So the decision states that without robust national and international efforts, the effects of climate change in receiving states may expose individuals to a violation of their rights, thereby triggering the non-refoulement obligations of sending states. What does this mean? This principle of non-refoulement guarantees that no one should be returned to a country where they would face torture, degrading treatment, or other sort of irreparable harm. So throughout the decision, the committee is aware that of the changing nature of the effects of climate change. It accepts the claims of Mr. Teteota that sea level is rising and that it's likely to render Kiribati an, uh, not inhabitable uh, in the next 10 or 15 years. However, <laughs> the, the committee found that New Zealand had not violated the right to life in this particular case. And this was on the basis that first, there's no, there was no risk of specific harm to the author and also that 10 to 15 years should be enough for the state to take affirmative measures, including, if necessary, relocating the whole population. This decision contrasts with the decision of the Dutch Supreme Court that Connor mentioned in the Urgenda case, which, based on human rights uh, on the uh, jurisprudence, concluded that states might owe positive obligations to members of the general public in relations to risks of future harms. So it didn't need to be immediate. Um, now to finish this kind of the set of international cases, one week after this decision in the Tetiota case, a new complaint was submitted by a group of Indian tribes in Alaska and in Louisiana to 10 UN special rapporteurs alleging that the US government has failed to address climate-driven violations of their rights. So this group, these tribes, they argue that uh, their land is becoming uninhabitable, both because of the slow ongoing climate impacts from sea level rise, but also because of extreme weather events made worse by climate change. The complaint calls the special rapporteurs to recommend that the federal government recognizes that climate force displacement is a human rights crisis and to take actions to address such displacement. For example, funding the relocation processes for the native village of Kivalina and the Ile de Jean Charles, also granting federal recognition to tribal nations in Louisiana so they can start accessing federal resources for adaptation and disaster response. So I gave you a few examples of domestic and international cases that are dealing with displacement. And now 
to conclude, I just want to say a few things about where I think this is going. Um, so many of these cases have been brought as a way to advance climate policies, to drive behavior sh shifts by key actors from uh, governments to corporates. Specifically, these cases, they come together, they come at a time where we're we, we expecting pronouncements in a number of other cases that allege climate-related violations of human rights. And Connor mentioned a few of these, including the case brought by Greta Thunberg and other uh, young people uh, to the UN uh, Committee of Rights of the Child and a number of other cases. Now, being a bit more critical about this, what these cases might be able to do is that they might be able to lay out a blueprint of the consequences of inaction on mitigation and uh, of ineffective adaptation efforts. However, and I conclude, the increased use of litigation also emphasize a need for more science and evidence-seeking research on this topic. And I, I want to call attention to a very provocative article by Ingrid Boas and colleagues that was recently published on Nature. Uh, and what they say is that the mobility is a very complex issue. So sometimes alarming headlines about mass climate migrations, and here I might include flooding courts with cases, also have a risk of leading to more walls rather than fewer. Thank you, Robert, and thank you, everyone. Wonderful, Jana. Thank you very much. This nicely rounds off this opening round of our panel. Thank you to the four panelists for sticking to the time frame, but also for giving us lots of stuff to chew on and to work with. Now, um, I was planning to field my own questions to the panelists, but looking at the list of questions that are flooding in from the audience, I think I'm not going to abuse Chair's prerogative and I will move straight into the Q&A session so that we get as many of the participants' questions into this. Just to remind you, if you want to put a question to the panelists, please write in the Q&A uh, box at the bottom of your screen and uh, if you could also give your name and who you are, your institutional affiliation, if you're a student or alumnus or alumna of the LSE, then please mention that as well. Um, I'm going to direct questions to individual panelists where they should be directed to one or two people or otherwise I'll leave it open for the panel to respond. And I'm going to start with a few questions that have come in uh, that are directed at Tazin. Um, and they go back to the opening remarks that Tazin made about some of the consequences that uh, local communities face when they're, uh, when they're threatened uh, by displacement. And Zara Yazdi, an LSE student from Toronto, uh, would like to ask you if you could explore a little bit more the consequence of environmental migration of environmental migrants or refugees that lose their cultural identity. You brought in that concept uh, and it, she's asking that you explore a little bit more what the consequences of, the, of such a loss of cultural identity are. And let me bring in the second question uh, from Chiara, an LSE alumna from Italy, uh, and that's also for Tazin. And Chiara asks, um, how can stakeholder engagement and participation be promoted in policy and intervention design? Um, is it important to involve stakeholders and affected communities in the definition of concepts such as climate justice and climate um, migration? So these are two specific questions. I'd like 
to put them to Tazine first and then I'll carry on with other questions. Yeah, thank you, Robert, for that. And two, two very interesting but very pertinent questions. I think the consequences of losing cultural identity cannot be underestimated. The, the consequences are enormous. Um, and I think um, with reference to cultural identity, it, it, it relates to your values and your worth not just as an individual, but your, your worth as a, as a member of a family, extended family, but also a sense of, of community. Um, because people relate, particularly in, in, in the global south, they relate to um, uh, their land and, and the ancestral home. And it's been passed down to, to families through many, many, many generations. And it's that, that value and that worth of what people don't see um, initially, it gets carried on to the next generations. Um, and, and so I think, you know, the, losing that cultural identity means that you lose your, your sense of who you are. Um, and the worry is, is that if, if people are displaced in that way and they lose that, that sense, then what does it mean for them in the, in the years ahead? And will they be able to, to recoup and revalue and regain that? Because, um, like I'm saying, through the research that we're doing, people have lost their their ancestral homes because of um, the, the fishing communities who, who've been working with, and they will probably never get that back because they can't reclaim that space and that zone. So they're going to have to re-evaluate, re-identify, or recalibrate, you know, who they are um, and and where they they go next. And that is extremely. It will be. It's extremely hard and, it, and extremely uh, challenging. And I can't say I have all the answers to that. But I can. All I can say is that we cannot underestimate that that hiddenness that, that we see there. And and for that reason, it's very relevant to go on to the next question around stakeholder engagement. And I think this is what I was referring to earlier on. Many decisions are made about um, how we address and deal with. The, the population of people who are, are being displaced and as other members of the panel have said, not, not recognising um, the harm it's doing to them is, is it's, it's, you know, it's something that we really need to, to grapple with. So I think in terms of their engagement in, in defining um, in, in intervention design, because we're, we want to not just look at um, the negatives, but what are the solutions? Where do we go from here? How do we, how do we build on, on these issues going forward? And I think one of the ways in which we can do that is, is getting a real sense of, of um, not just that engagement, but, but hearing from people what it is that they need, um, what are the needs and wants, and how can, how can those needs and wants be embraced in climate action going forward because it may be things that we have not recognized sitting back as an international community because a lot of these people have kind of like solutions lenses in their heads and thinking about where do we go where do they, they go next but the only way to get to that stage is cap is capturing um those issues um and the way i always look at these things is is multi-scalar multi-level stakeholder engagement and i think that's an absolute must in intervention design because without that then i think we're going to lose um lose the 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 lens of needs um of, of people that are affected so i hope that answers your question i mean they're huge questions um to 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 be able to answer so i hope that's provided some thoughts there 
That's wonderful. Thank you, Tarsin. Um, there were a couple of questions about um, the, the very question of the boundaries of human rights and rights in general in international international law. And there were two questions, particularly for Conor Gerty, about the interesting point he made on extending the notion of rights to non-humans and even non-Asians. And here, Yahid Yastan Pana says, rights are traditionally defined for entities that we assume to have agency, simply mature humans and human-based institutions. If we dismiss agency, what will be reasonable conditions for a rightful entity, uh, Yahid asks. Don't we still need to link it to being beneficial to humans? Do we not need those rights to be eventually linked back to our human-centered laws? And there's another question which goes in the same direction. I'm just scrolling uh, uh, through this. And yes, um, Questions about giving uh, the non-human world legal personhood so that as legal persons, they are given enforceable rights. This is a question from Jeanette Franks. In that regard, does it not undermine the concept of rights being ingrained if it is something that has to be given by endowing the environment with personhood? It, it's a question that also goes back to the issue of agency in this. Connor, perhaps you could elaborate a bit more on, on this idea that you introduced into this debate and, and what its meaning and uh, significance is in this context. Yeah, sure, sure, I'd be delighted. There, there are really interesting points to reflect on. I'll do it briefly. Uh, I think we have to decide whether we believe that agency matters. There are whole books about human rights, and they root themselves in the assumption that it's about autonomy, or it's about agency, and that everything flows from that. And how these experts work that out, I'm not sure, but they work it out. And that means they have a certain limited range of rights that are available to a limited range of people. And then we have big debates about whether if you have no agency, you have any rights, whether you can take a utilitarian approach and say, well, if they're not functioning humans, we can zap them, which might include uh, somebody in the room, controversially, somebody, is it a person, or uh, a kid, or an older person with disabilities, or a person who's uh, suffering from dementia. And so we can have all those debates. And they go on and on and on. They go on and on and on. Uh, I'm really, in the end, not that interested in them. And what I have is a radically different approach, which is that basically power determines what the content of human rights is. And we can have all the professors in the world who some professor had to go at me in the Times because I was some kind of human rights universalist. What he didn't like was that, this is yesterday, was that uh, I wanted to make sure British troops didn't get away with killing people abroad. You know, so it's all power, really. And it can be staked up as a jurisdiction point or an autonomy point. So I'm fairly relaxed about that. So I see uh, the content of human rights being filled by mobilization. And I'm pretty relaxed if it turns out that it's embracing more than autonomous persons. I'm a little suspicious about something which ends up favoring people like me all the time, you know, university educated sort of very kind of intellectual types that suddenly get the whole pool when it comes to human rights. So, but my view, it's a kind of minority, really minority view, I think. On the second one, there's always a tension, well spotted actually, between 
on the one hand saying we've always had human rights and on the other hand having to find them so so you know uh, that's why i think of human rights as as part of a movement through history as a new kind of way of describing an old idea and that old idea is about empathy is about imagination is about openness to the other and the other goes beyond the human and the language we get to make meaning of that varies from time to time and the latest ruse is human rights and so we say we've always had them we've always had them but other people just didn't know so i remember an article was aristotle a sexist you know did aristotle breach human rights well to me it's a sort of non question when the human rights act came in in britain hilariously some guy started a case where the implication was that king charles the 1st could get compensation for a miscarriage of justice arising out of his execution in 1649 so you know good luck to them my feeling is i don't care i i don't care about the contradictions the paradoxes uh, i find them <clears throat> i claim they were always there and uh, they do good they provide outcomes that i approve of the language of human rights works if i need to say they were always there and i've just found them i'll say it but i i don't worry about it and i think the future works when we radically manipulate the tensions in our subject to do good wonderful thank you connor um i'd like to stay on the topic of human rights for a moment and explore a little bit its global application and and universal uh role uh, connor mentioned in in his opening remarks that it is a universal concept and therefore is of significance because it applies to every person on this planet but there's a question from senan mata from glasgow caledonian university and the question is if climate displacement is recognized as a violation of human rights by un committees and human rights courts etc but domestic and national law by and large does not recognize it isn't this an indication that perhaps human rights and particularly those that apply to climate displacement are not universal but need to be nationally determined rights and this raises the broader question of well where does global international human rights law come into this when in the end as jana explained most litigation of course ends up in national courts so perhaps i could turn to jana and connor if you want to come back sure sure i'll come after jana on this i'll let jana go first you can do the hard work on this one yes thanks it's a very good question and and i think it it is uh well basically it's very important to have this uh, regulated domestically not only uh because a lot of migration or displacement uh doesn't cross borders so many in many countries and there studies on bangladesh and india uh w- when people get affected by extreme weather events and uh water scarcity they are unlikely to take a plane and 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 relocate to europe they will move internally so you need to have domestic legislation and institutions that can deal with this movement and understand what's happening internally too and and for that you can have you know the most beautiful international treaty with the most beautiful language very inspiring that won't do for what's happening on the ground 
So um, I, I think then then it's uh, maybe also a, a limitation of all this international treaty making, which takes forever, as we know from the climate negotiations, for example, and that often doesn't get immediately translated into domestic. So these things need to happen in parallel. And I would say the most urgent is that domestically countries are prepared, uh, not just the countries that have people leaving, but also those that have people that are receiving. And and, and as I said, for a domestic movement. So I think... Um, I, I, yeah, this is how I would answer this question. And now I'm curious to see what Connor will bring. Uh, very good, John. Well, I, Robert mentioned that I was a barrister. And I, this is a little story, which is an answer. Right? Uh, we were doing this case where this guy had said he got uh, Gulf War syndrome. It's very controversial at the time. And he was in the high court. And on the morning of the second day of the hearing, there was an interview in the Times where he said there are thousands of us. And the judge came in. Mr. Justice Newman, the late Mr. Justice Newman, I said, what's all this? What's all this? Who are these people? And our, our side, Ravindra Singh QC, said, stood up and said, no, look, no, no, it's only our time. It's only our time. Stop. Don't worry, Judge. Don't worry, Judge. The law is really nervous about multiple litigants. Now, you might think, oh, my goodness. The more litigants, the bigger the injustice. Actually, really oddly, human rights law cannot bear too much reality. So if there was another case where if it's up in Scotland, Tassin, actually, where chaps were having to slop out of prison, as long as only one or two of them were, that is a brutal and inhuman and degrading treatment. If they all are, it begins to look like a judicial policy intervention. So one of our problems, to go back to the refugees, it's such a big problem. Can you envisage a group right? It is really difficult. Back final point on this, to politics. There is a right, a right of self-determination. It's such a big deal, it got put into the two documents that were agreed in 1966. It's a people's right of self-determination. So in another case, wearing another hat before the Human Rights Committee, we were putting the, uh, a, a, an organization which is a secessionist group within a country which has been riven by civil war. We were trying to characterize their right, not as the right to free speech, the right to freedom of assembly, as a right of self-determination. Political power got it there because in the 60s, of course, countries were aware of the power of, of anti-colonial movements. And I'm afraid, I do not see any time soon, a refugee movement with the capacity to do justice in the field of litigated human rights, to be honest with you. And I may be exposing a weakness in the language of human rights as compared with the language of, I don't know, uh, solidarity or national justice. But it's really hard to compete with national fervor. And national fervor generates an empathetic energy which we have not yet been able to spread into the world as a whole. Wonderful. Um, thank you, Connor, And thank you, Joanna. This actually creates a nice bridge to my next question which is about the role of power in this. And I'd like to bring in uh, Chucks to talk about human rights at the international level from the perspective of an international relations scholar. We've heard from our legal experts, but how does this look 
when you analyze international negotiations as you do, Chucks. And here's a question from Lee Edwards from the LSE's Department of Media and Communication, who says, how can human rights law help to effectively address the asymmetries that Professor Okereke has outlined, given that there are power struggles going on? And perhaps, Chucks, you could talk a little bit about who in the international context would actually champion stronger human rights provisions that give more concrete, more tangible rights to displaced peoples? And who is holding this back? Can you talk us through a sort of the, the politics behind this a little bit? Thank you very much, Rob. I think you pose a very interesting question. Whereas in the realm of uh, broad uh, international negotiation outside of the uh, environmental agreements, there has been a general feeling that the person that has the greatest power takes all, you know, makes all the decisions. Uh, we have increasingly noticed that that kind of construction um, does not quite bear out in international environmental agreements. So uh, take, for example, the Kyoto Protocol. Well, if you step back to the UNFCCC in 1992, uh, there was quite a strong push by the developed countries, led, you know, uh, unashamedly by the U.S., to expunge every mention of justice in that agreement. But a coalition of uh, the progressives, of, uh, the group uh, 77 plus China, received a very sympathetic ears from a progressive uh, European Union bloc. And uh, hence, we have a lot of mention of justice in the UNFCCC agreement. Of course, we do know that the uh, what we call victory was very short-lived because not long after that, uh, the Kyoto Protocol was negotiated. The U.S. was able to pull out of the Kyoto and more or less uh, rendered it mm, watered down and perhaps some people will say significantly of no effect. And that shows that you cannot still discount the role of economic and political power in um, uh, an environmental agreement. And what we've seen is a repeated attempt by uh, a lot of people and uh, nations to bend backwards over to accommodate the U.S. position. And we see it in stark play as we are negotiating the Paria Agreement. The U.S. made its position quite clear from earlier on that it will not tolerate what it called a top-down agreement, that it has to be bottom-up, where all the nations will have to uh, play some kind of part. It was constructed that we are all in this mess together and that everybody has to do their own part. What was not made prominent in that kind of construction and problematization was actually that we've always been in it together and actually the poor people that have bared the greatest of the brunt uh, in terms of adapting to climate change. And we are beginning increasingly to sacrifice their legitimate development aspirations because of the harmful effects of climate change. But anyway, the European Union, having been more or less decapitated or decimated by the internal wrangling, could not hold uh, against the pressure of the U.S. And hence we signed, you know, which in my view, 
it's an agreement in Paris that has, of course, the virtue of uh, everybody is playing their part, but actually have managed to relegate issues of justice and equity to the background. And all nations have to now do is to basically put a small paragraph in their nationally determined contribution to say how fair their, uh, their promise is. So what we have here is, on the one hand, a, a set of interesting cases that show that no, even you know, small island states like the Maldives, the, uh, the, uh, the Tonga, the, the, uh, the, the Bangladesh, they could actually punch far above their weight by constantly invoking on this norm of justice and fairness, which although may be difficult to define, has actually gained momentum, at least from public consciousness as a way of framing climate change. But in reality, when it comes to putting money on the table, which is necessary to actually drive or uh, practically implement or action some of these sort of ideas of justice, however you define it, you now see that the power still belongs to those who are able to, to control the pulse. And I can go on and on in terms of the contributions of nations to GCF. And uh, uh, in this particular case, the lack of uh, practical implementations of adaptation actions and loss and damage. So where does it leave us? I think that uh, the, the, those are in the constructive school that talk about norms, uh, will say, claim a, a bit of victory that actually the norms of climate change has managed to find its way into the mainstream of uh, the vocabulary of climate change policy decision making. But those who are uh, more persuaded by the realist uh, school of thought will continue to say, well, actually, so where does that get you? And I think maybe it's a bit of a draw to use um, uh, the, the uh, uh, football terminology. Uh, so where is the, the momentum going to come from? We go back to, um, uh, to, to what you've been hearing about the lack of, where well, we need to be careful, uh, the lack of momentum or the, the inability of human rights things to compete with national favor. But also, we shouldn't be too quick in talking about international new agreement. Given what Joanna just told us and Tahin also mentioned, that nearly 75% of those that are displaced are actually uh, internally displaced. So what we need to do is to be working from two angles, helping nations to be able to uh, set up laws, but also uh, looking for existing mechanisms within the United uh, Nations Framework Convention and the, the UNHRC, where we can find some ways of connecting these two. That's the bottom up and the top down. Thank you, Chucks. Uh, that's a very important dimension to bring to this. Actually, I want to stay on the question of the international response to climate displacement because we haven't quite uh, covered that sufficiently. There's a question from Marissa, who's a current LSE student, and she wanted to ask all the panelists about the very question that Chucks has just elaborated, which is to what extent is the issue of climate displacement a question of north-south development aid and other specific forms of assistance that need to flow to those countries where displacement, where climate migration uh, occurs? Do you see this, and to what extent do you see this as an important mechanism, she asks, to achieve climate justice? Could I just get quick feedback from most of, from all of you? Jacques has already touched on this. Uh, what do you think the role specifically for the international community and for international financial aid is in this area? Or whether you think the problem has to be addressed at different levels in different contexts? Who would like to come in on that? 
Well, I will start and I will yield to uh, my colleagues. I think, as I've already uh, indicated, there has to be um, action uh, at multiple levels. This is what we will call international politics multi-scale governance. For me, the very first thing that needs to happen at an international level is to recognize this as a problem. As I already indicated, there is no single mention of climate change displacement in the major uh, environmental treaties in the UNFCCC, uh, 1992, the Kyoto Protocol, and the Paris Agreement. Even if you go to the smaller documents uh, or uh, other documents like the, uh, the, the, the Warsaw Mechanism, the Bali Accord, the uh, Nairobi uh, work plan on adaptation, there is no explicit mention of climate change displacement. So I will argue that the first thing that has to happen is the explicit recognition of this problem in those articles of treaty. Then uh, the second thing will have to be to then encourage international cooperation, but also regional cooperation and nations to give attention to this. You know, the, the challenge with leaving this thing to nations, even though the bulk of the climate change displaced people will be not migrating cross-border, will be that the majority of the nations where you will be getting these IDPs will also be nations that are already struggling in depth, that are strapped in terms of uh, capacity, in terms of resources. That's why it is important to ensure that we have a concomitant international mechanism of a sort where money is put on the table to be able to assist those nations that could show willingness uh, to do, uh, to take action, uh, to, to, to act on that. That's why we need action on multiple level. An international dimension is very, very crucial. Great, thank you. Um, Tazim, I think yeah, you were trying thanks. to go. Thanks, Robert, for, for, for that. And, and that's a, a really interesting question. And I think, you know, you can't um, split issues of financial aid with, without the, thinking about the political landscape and the political will that, that underpins where the aid ends up and, and where, where it goes. But I think with reference to um, migration and conflict, I think, you know, the statistics and information, the, the data is already out there about the, the, the most at-risk countries. We, we, we know which ones they are. The, you know, the, there's 19 of them. And I think, you know, as an international community, if we were really um, wanting to, to address the issues there, we, we would be, be looking at this through the lens of these most at-risk countries and, and looking at who, who's going to be affected most within the, the, those those boundaries and, and tailoring aid so it reaches those that, that need it the most. But we know right now, we already know through the work, the research that we're doing, that financial aid doesn't reach those who, who need it the most, or by, it gets bypassed, or or or, or there's issues of, of corruption, or it ends up in in pockets, um, which kind of like tell a story, so that you get um, quick gains in in very short in very short timescales. And I think with with aid and to help displaced people, we we really are looking at long term um, strategies and financial resources that are stacked up um, correctly and carefully and meaningfully um, that addresses um, the things that I was talking about early, earlier on in terms of um, the resources that people need to, to, to survive um, out, of, out of these kinds of crises. So I think that there, there are a number of things. It's looking at this, the financial aid through that justice lens, which I don't think happens 
just now. I think we, we, we recognise that aid doesn't reach those that need it. So that's the first thing. We need to look at those frameworks um, uh, through, through that lens. Um, and the second thing is relating to what Chuck's had said already. It's about the political landscape and, and the political will um, as to where the, the, the resources go. So uh, th there are a couple of things uh, at play here, um, I think, and you can't split the two. Thank you for that. Let me put the question to our two lawyers in the panel as well. Um, is the realization of human rights for displaced people dependent on there being a sufficient financial mechanism at the international level? In other words, can there be any human rights protection without the money that supports those that are at risk of displacement? I'll go first, uh, since Joanna went first last time. I was glad to hear Chucker talking optimistically about power relations and how it was possible, as it were, to win. Because it's really hard. And human rights plays a role here, I think, addressing your point specifically and the questioners. Because powerful, well-off people construct reasons why it's not immoral to refuse to help. And they drive even people whose poverty is the direct result of their own success. And they drive political cultures into these positions where they can feel good about the destruction of lives. And one of the great ways in which human rights has, 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 has worked has been trying to counter that. And has been trying to get people to understand the responsibility they have for the horrible lives that are led by, for example, displaced persons. So that's a good bit. Bad bit is, unfortunately, the limitations of law. We don't have international legal processes. These political leaders, to get out of the room, increasingly make elaborate commitments, which they have no intention of supporting. That's become much more of a habit. It's really sad. But until quite recently, governments, when they said things, meant them. And now there's a kind of fashion for not meaning them. So, so you know, it's, it's become a kind of common thread. There's no uh, accountability. And it's a real pity we don't have laws because laws would force the expenditure that's promised. The expenditure is at the level of rhetoric. And Shoko has been optimistic about power relations. It's going to be very, very difficult. Joanna. Yes. Yeah, so uh, you asked about the importance of aid and international funding for this. Uh, of course, that's always important. But I think that there is still uh, maybe a few important questions that need to be thought through and sorted before. So first you have to identify the rights and the responsibilities. So whose rights you want to protect and what are the responsibilities of states in, in, in this? And, and then second, I think also a point that I raised at the end, but that I, I find really important in this question is that you, you need to understand that uh, climate affects uh, people in, in displacement, um, in, both in a sudden way, but also as a slow onset. And, and you, you need to understand the differentiation for that. So you, you might have different types of aid, those for uh, something that happens now and it's urgent, but also to think long term for those who will have the slow onset of uh, of the effects of climate change. So, so in a timeline, kind of a before, a during, and an after. So in, in my view, the, the, these are all important questions that need to be thought, and not just by the donor countries, but also thinking about uh, 
to so not only donor countries to the countries that are receiving because they are suffering, but also thinking about the countries that are going to receive or regions that are receiving the population because there is a risk that with every migration and and this is something that climate migration is very similar to any other types that you have the effect of the fear of the other and this is something that has to be dealt with as well so it's not just the 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 aid for moving people relocating for example but also understanding where these people are going and how you avoid this uh, growing problem of fear of the other of the separation that we we're seeing in so many countries and and for that uh, and i finish i think it's it's really important to involve the affected populations so you are asking a question that goes all the way up to the kind of the international and the international aid but uh, from that i would bring it to very much the local and understanding what are the needs what are the uh, the fears what are what these populations actually suffer when they are uh, moving uh, from one place to another because of climate related issues wonderful thank you um i'm conscious of the time and we're nearly out of time and there's so many questions that are coming in and i'm really sorry i can't get them all in there's perhaps just time for a very last question actually several people have asked about this and this uh, could be answered with a very quick response from our legal experts and several people as min young park a science post student from the united states uh, but there's also gregory leslie from cardiff in reading university who've asked about the rights around refugees and asylum seekers and whether climate change induced displacement is being recognized in the the laws and and the rights that emanate from those laws to do with asylum and whether you think that is a an instrument to deal with the challenges we are going to face in the future. I have time only for a very short answer. So, Joanna or Connor or Chucks or uh, Tasmin, if you have... The others may know, may know more than me. Uh, I think it's, it's an example of where you try and work, as you do with Indigenous peoples, or relatively powerless, to try and get to a situation where there's a statement, and then you develop a stronger law. But we're some way away. Are we some way away, Joanna? We're some way away from something. Yeah, so the answer is kind of quick answer. So far, there hasn't been this recognition yeah. of uh, displaced people having uh, nor the refugee status nor uh, as, uh, the right to asylum because of climate. And, and all the cases that I mentioned, all these examples from New Zealand and, and Australia and, and in the US so far, there hasn't been once that these uh, the right, their rights as refugees or asylum seekers has been recognized. Mm. That, that's true, but uh, the United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Human Refugees did say that there are several instances in which climate change displaced people could um, be subject to uh, refugee or asylum consideration or at least uh, care from the High Commissioner if there, uh, there is um, a violence dimension to it. You know, but the problem is you can never prove alone that climate change. But when there is a violent-based dimension, as in the case of Chad, for example, Boko Haram plus drying up of Chad, uh, then they could, they do feel that they could step in to do something. But just on the basis of climate change alone, no. 
And I guess for me, just very quickly, is just goes back right back to the beginning of this conversation, this reference to definitions, rules, uh, responsibilities. Wonderful. Very interesting indeed. We've covered a lot of ground, but there's so much more we would have wanted to touch on. Uh, very many thanks, thanks to the uh, participants who've asked very interesting, challenging questions. Apologies to those who've not been able to get in. All that's left for me now is to thank the panelists for taking the time uh, to speak to us today. I think we've all benefited from a wonderfully enlightening and stimulating discussion. Thanks to Tarsine, Joanna, Connor and Chucks. And thanks to the audience for joining us. If you enjoyed this event and would like to attend similar ones, then do check out the Grantham Research Institute website for future events. Thank you very much and see you.